Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach And within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I have Campbell Will on with me, who is like my new best friend. I love him so much. He is also known as the breath body therapy person. You can find him on Instagram that way or his website. And he is a physical therapist. And we just speak the same language, which is really about looking at our amazing body, brain, the physiology, the kinesiology, the movement, and specifically with Campbell, the breath and how the breath can change how you feel, can change how you function, can change how you emote, how you regulate. We dive all into breathing. So get ready and enjoy my conversation with Campbell. Welcome, Campbell. Always excited to have another physiotherapist on the podcast. So happy to have you. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. So we were just talking ahead of time. You're originally from Australia, but you're living part-time in New Jersey, (laughs) not too far from me. Um, So let's back it up from your early days in Australia. What what, uh, inspired you to become a physio? I think it was was definitely always my interest in the human body. Um, I didn't have like a big injury or something that was like, I'm going to be the person that helps people recover from this injury. But I was just fascinated with like, how the human body worked. And I wanted to kind of understand that, I guess, from a more mechanistic level as to like, this moves here and this does this and the process and the function. So that was kind of like my, I guess, desire to to become someone that works with the body and understand how the body works. 
And from there, it's continued to be that play that role. But more recently, I've found that what makes the body work really well is breathing and, and these other functions, right? So where we come from the more, I guess, musculoskeletal lens, I've started to recognize, oh, well, emotions are super important and energy is super important and how I think and feel and act are all parts of what makes the body function well. So that's kind of been the progression to me, moving from the more physical to, I guess, the other lenses in which we can look through trying to get someone to kind of optimal function and well-being. Okay, before we dive more into that, because I'm so fascinated with that, kind of more like physiology instead of just the kinesiology, I, I like to integrate them all. I talk about this in my lip method. It's like neurology, kinesiology, and physiology with breath being a huge component of all three. But before we dive into that, how is practicing in Australia different um, in terms of the physio approach to practicing in the US. I'm very interested in, I've heard and I've certainly studied from some Australian physios, but what have you noticed having practiced in both uh, countries? To me, the biggest thing is the difference in insurance, right? And, and what I mean by that is the accessibility and the role that the physio plays. Here, it seems much more someone is coming to the physical therapist after seeing the doctor and the doctor says, you need physical therapy. Whereas in Australia, we're a first contact practitioner. Someone sprays their ankle or has back pain, they go directly to the physiotherapist instead of coming via the kind of general practitioner or the physician. So I think we get to see a lot more of just the, the initial kind of root cause of someone hurt something or sprained something or has dysfunction and they turn perhaps first to the physio. And then if it can't be solved through those means, now maybe now the physio refers back to the general practitioner or physician to then investigate further. So I think it's just a difference in the filtration or the funneling system of like, where do you get to see the patient and what part of their journey are you actually getting to put hands on and, and discuss and have that relationship with the patient? Well, and because of that autonomy, do you find that also your therapeutic intervention is different? So it's not just like, I'm just going to focus on your ankle versus I'm going to look at like how you're moving that might have perhaps set you up to hurt your ankle, not just yeah. like zone in, which I feel like, unfortunately, our modern medical model is set up. You have a diagnostic code. It's about the ankle. You have five sessions. You better get it done with the ankle. Is it different in Australia in that way? Yes and no. I think you just hit the nail on the head. To me, what is the difference between a really good therapist and maybe a mediocre one is looking at the big picture. And I mm -hmm. don't think that's just based on the system. I think a lot of therapists in Australia will fall into that same, oh, this is an ankle problem, address the ankle. But I do feel, especially when like, because we have, we see kind of insurance patients as well, where it's like, you're not allowed to treat the back if that person's been coming in for an insurance claim on their ankle. So it kind of takes away our role as being that holistic integrative practitioner of saying, well, you rolled your ankle because you're not functioning well from your hip or your back. But it's kind of like, I, I really dislike that compartmentalization of like, you're only allowed to touch the ankle because this is an ankle problem. It's like the human body is not compartmentalized like that. <laughs> so yeah. you're taking away my skill set and being able to address form and function and why that person keeps rolling their ankle. Exactly. And I mean, I've always been the rebel early, early on, to, you know, because I was able to actually start in a clinical setting uh, 27 years ago where we did look 
always holistically, even though there was a a diagnosis and we had a lot more time. And so even when somebody would say, oh, it's it's his knee that you need to be focusing on, I was like, well, okay. But I would be looking, you know, everywhere. Of course, it's easier for the PT to just focus on the knee, give exercises, not think about anything else. Um, But it is, you know, that's, that's a part of our, our entire health system that is really missing, um, where we're not looking at all of the systems in the body that could influence that or might be, you know, hurt by it. So for instance, if somebody were to hurt their ankle, tell me how you have figured out breath could help that person. Yeah, it's such a good, and and this is like, I think you've just hit the nail on the head and it sounds like we speak the same language in terms of what we might perceive as the problem with the modern medical system is like this role of just utter and complete specialization where it's like, I'm just the ankle guy. It's like, well, the body doesn't work like that. Um, one of the one of my mentors that I really love, he's actually in New Jersey as well. His name's Perry Nicholson. He's a, he's a oh, I love him. I was just yes. I was just texting with him yesterday, two days but ago. That yeah. moniker, right, of stop chasing pain yes. is so good and it's so succinct in weighing like where the problem looks like. That's not where it is. That's just where it's presenting. And I think that's a really good lesson because we're so like honed in on like this is my problem. I'm going to focus here, and it's like we're just putting more energy into the problem. So that I would argue the exact same kind of role that breath plays, where it's like, this is a foundational piece of how the body works to its best ability, right? If we take the more physiological or biochemical lens, right? It's energy. You cannot produce energy without oxygen and how well you can get oxygen, number one, into your lungs, but number two, from your lungs to your blood, number three, from your blood to your tissue kind of dictates, are you working optimally, right? Are you cleaning burning clean fuel or are you burning dirty fuel, right? Are you then cleaning up the metabolic waste products of an inefficient energy management system? So it's really kind of like slowly infiltrated the way that I treat patients and someone might come in with a sore leg and I'm asking them about their breathing and they're kind of like, I came in with a sore leg. Like, why are you asking me that? It's like, well, it tells me a lot about your ability to be stable, like biomechanics. And it tells me a lot about your stress levels, right? The tension in your body, your sleep, all the things that we know are going to enhance someone's recovery, right? We can kind of look at, well, maybe those things aren't functioning really well because this baseline level of your breathing isn't matching the function that we want it to. So I kind of really like to look at breath as not the piece that fixes all the problems, but I do see it as a, a contributing factor to almost everything. Like I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find a dysfunction or disease that is not influenced by breathing. Mm, I love that. And, you know, on the note, the reason why I contacted Perry is I had a client who I've known for many years and has had this, what seemed to be some kind of weird degenerative thing happening where she was just feeling pain all in all these different places. She wasn't digesting well. She, all, you know, she gave me all these symptoms and she's, she's very busy woman. And she finally said, I really need to see you. I'm just hopeless. You know, I've, um, I feel like my body's failing me. She'd seen a bunch of doctors. So she's telling me all these things. And this is just an example of how you and I, and, 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 what we want the system to be, we want the medical model to be, is that I was listening to her symptoms, but I was really trying to um, think about the potential root causes of those symptoms. You know, everything was being treated, the, the symptoms were being treated. And I felt very strongly it was some vagal nerve um, dysfunction. 
And I, you know, and she was going to see a doctor and I was like, you know, I'm going to do, I did some vagal nerve um, releases for her. We did some breath work and, you know, she's like, what do I tell my doctor? And I said, you can just tell him this. He may totally laugh, right? You can say my therapist told me this and, and it turned out her doctor agreed with it. Number one, it gives like, it, it gives hope, I think that we ultimately, when, there's many things that contribute to our well-being and it's not out of our control. We just have to, we have to know about it. And so can you talk a little bit about the vagus nerve for those people who are not, because this has a lot to do with our breathing, our digestion, our stress, our sleep, everything, our nerve function. Yeah. I mean, I'm so like, I love to just obsess about autonomic nervous system because the way I like to explain it to my patients is like what we all get taught and what most people, the level of understanding about the autonomic nervous system, it's like I have the sympathetic or the parasympathetic, the stress response or the relaxation response. And that's a quite a black and white kind of dichotomous view. And in the body, I think it's a little bit more fluid than that, right? It's more of a spectrum, right? On one end is very sympathetic and the other end is very parasympathetic. But between those two points, like I move and this concept that I love of prioritization, right? When I'm in a more sympathetic state, my body will prioritize certain functions over others, right? Where am I sending the blood flow? Where am I using the energy? What functions am I putting to the top of the list? And those are very different to the functions that when I'm in a more parasympathetic state that I'm going to prioritize. So instead of thinking this like accelerator and brake, black or white, it's kind of like, well, with the energetic resources that you have available to you, what is your body prioritizing spending that energy on? Is it managing the inflammation? Is it repairing the cells? Is it detoxing? Or is it sending the blood flow out to the muscles, tensing up and getting ready to run away because you're in that sympathetic state? And so where this kind of comes back and my obviously tool of choice is breathing is that's a very strong influence on that autonomic tone or that autonomic arousal. So I can breathe in a way that's telling my body we are in a sympathetic state, right? Let's prioritize the functions that we associate with stress and action and survival. Or I can breathe in a way that says, let's prioritize the functions that we associate with rest and recovery and restoration and detox and repair. And so it really, for me, the biggest tool of this is like giving the patient the opportunity to self-regulate, right? And I love what you said about we kind of are at this stage with the medical model of outsourcing our health, right? It's like, I'm going to see the person that tells me the thing or I'm eating the supplement or the food, right? What about looking internally? What about having tools that we can self-regulate and self-manage and be self-reliant? Because I think that's what a lot of us want and need and are lacking. And that to me just comes from education, right? If I can explain to you, oh, when you're breathing up into your chest, through your mouth, with your accessory respiratory muscles, the correct response of that is feeling anxious, is having a higher pain, like feeling more pain, right? Not being able to sleep, feeling stressed and anxious. It's like your body's functioning exactly as it should be. <laughs> There's nothing broken here. It's just that you're in an inappropriate state. And can we teach you tools to regulate that state? So then your thinking, your feeling, your actions are going to be at the same level of your nervous system, which is like, oh, instead of being the negative bias or focusing on the problem or putting all my energy into the symptoms, right? And managing the symptoms, it's like, let's start establishing or creating solutions and let the symptoms go away by themselves. I love that. And I, I you know, this is what I hope for everyone. And I definitely 
in my education, try and, and promote this. And it's challenging sometimes like on Instagram or in these little sound bites because people love the black or white. They love yeah. that you need to breathe like this or you need to breathe like that. And, you know, I, I see this a lot with the core. They're like, oh, you're, you know, you're engaging the core. You're not supposed to be engaging the core. And I'm like, your brain, what we're trying to do is train, train our nervous system to adapt to the demands that are placed on it. If I'm lying in bed, I, yeah, I should not be holding my core strong because I'm relaxing. I should be, you know, yeah, I should be softening. I should be, you know, have a soft belly. I should, you know, that's different than the demand. If I'm in a plank with gravitational forces, I'm not going to try and soften there. That's not going to work yes. really well. That's not going to work for, so it's like, you can't, at, but, you know, these sound bites, they drive me crazy. So people are like, oh my gosh, is the pelvic floor going to be bothered if you do that? And I'm like, no. If you train your nervous system, your brain, and all the, the all the stuff that it, it is in charge of, which is everything, to be more intelligent, to know, like, meet the demands. Like, do I really yeah. need to be anxious if I'm sitting at my desk typing? Um, no, that's probably a good time for me to try and, like, be more focused and not let that stress come in and, and help, you know, affect my breathing, affect my, my pain tolerance. It's just, we just want to be smarter. And I think, again, it's like we have just compartmentalized these buckets so much as opposed to looking at like this, the genius of our body and our nervous system and how we can train it to get stronger, train it to be smarter, train it to know when we need to relax and release. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's a gradient. It's totally a spectrum. It is not black and white. So I just wanted to say that. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, I really wanted to kind of get in there and reply <laughs> because I, I just couldn't agree more. And I just, everything you said, I, I just completely resonate with because I see the exact same thing, right? Good breathing and bad breathing. I'm like, <sighs> well, <laughs> let's break that down a little bit because bad breathing, right? Let someone says, oh, breathing quickly, breathing through your mouth, breathing into your chest is bad, right? Run into a building, burning building and tell me how <laughs> you want to be breathing, right? That is completely correct breathing. <laughs> when you're in a heightened sympathetic emergency high stakes environment, that is appropriate breathing, right? If you're sitting on the couch watching TV, yeah, terrible. It's inappropriate, right? Context is so important. But like you said, right, we love these little sound bites of this is good, this is bad. Mm -hmm. I really like to change that terminology of this is appropriate or this mm. is inappropriate. I right? love that. That's much better. Exactly. That you're under the situation that you're in, the environment that you're in, what's appropriate, right? So your breathing should be flexible and adaptive and responsive, right? It's not this black and white thing of like, this is good breathing. I'm breathing quietly through my nose, my diaphragm all the time, right? Sprint up a hill and tell me how that feels. Right? <laughs> it's inappropriate. <laughs> so we've got to lose the idea of like this one kind of like structured thing that's good and anything outside of that is bad. It's like, that's not how we're designed. We mm -hmm. want to be adaptive and responsive and flexible and be able to meet the demands that are placed on my body and the environment I'm in. And that requires flexibility. Yes. So wh what kind of um, diagnosis? Well, I'm just going to ask you straight up, like pelvic health. Let's talk about that because uh, pelvic health is super important. The pelvis, the pelvic core, pelvic floor, it's really not just the pelvic floor. Everything inside the bowl of the pelvis um, is part of our core. And it is part of the, you know, the bottom part of the, our, the pressure system of our breathing. So what, what kind of issues do you see, both male and female, um, might experience and what are some recommendations you can give? So somebody says, I feel like, you know, I, 
I'm either leaking or I can't let go of a clinching pelvic floor. I always tell people that doesn't mean it's strong. It just means it's like high tone, right? You're like, you're probably clinching everywhere. (laughs) So I would love to know what kind of recommendations you give. Yeah. I mean, and that you just hit the nail on the head in terms of what I think most important for most people to understand is like tense doesn't equal strong. (laughs) No. And in in fact, you could, they're kind of like, you could have both, you could have neither, they could be opposing, they could be kind of like complementing, but it's just like, I think that analogy of like, oh, if it's tense, it must be like serving its function or I need to learn to relax. It's like, there's so much again on that spectrum, but what I tend to see, and again, I'm going to kind of paint with broad strokes and generalize, this is not always the case and that's why it requires assessment, but generally what I see is a more hypertonicity or a tension or a holding pattern. And we think about, and where I want to relate this to kind of breathing is like, think about when we usually hold our breath, right? I'm frightened. I'm bracing. I'm expecting pain, right? Something surprises me. So this kind of sharp inhale and then contracting of the diaphragm is where my attention goes. But diaphragm is the roof, pelvic floor is the floor, kind of abdominal wall, right? We think of this cylindrical chamber of pressure. And if I'm bracing with the diaphragm, whether that's a conscious or unconscious pattern and whether that's something that's happening all the time or just in response to certain triggers, it's creating a change in that pressure system, right? And typically, what people do with their diaphragm is very similar to what people will do with their pelvic floor. If I'm bracing with my diaphragm all the time, I'm going to have a tendency to kind of counteract that by bracing with the pelvic floor. And how often are we bracing? Well, depends on what your day looks like. But in my experience, a lot of people unconsciously, right? I open up that email and I'm holding my breath and tensing my abs because there's that email from my boss or the deadline I missed, right? And there's this unconscious bracing of the diaphragm, which is bracing of the pelvic floor. And so it's not as simple as just saying, oh, well, you need to learn to relax. (laughs) We have to establish, well, why do you have this triggered? Why do you have this automatic response to something that feels a little bit stressful or scary or fearful? And why do you brace with the diaphragm? And I think it's super interesting. And again, not all people, but we can kind of go far enough back and find something that happened, right? Where it was an appropriate response. And this is what I think is super interesting especially around back pain as well, when I see interrupted breathing patterns, right? And if I go usually far enough back, they're like, oh yeah, I had this car accident or I had this whiplash or I had a really bad bout of back pain or I had a pregnancy and postpartum, like I had some SI dysfunction or back pain dysfunction. It's like my breathing might have changed as a response to that situation. My back pain got better, but my breathing didn't right? Or my SI dysfunction got better, but I maintained this inappropriate breathing pattern of bracing and holding and not restoring the function of my diaphragm and my breathing. And down the line, now I'm starting to see I can't relax or I can't release that tension because it's just gone on for so long. So I think it's important to remember that breathing is a behavior as well. And how that behavior came up, it's really important for us to try and identify. And sometimes we can't. Sometimes you're like, no, I never hurt my back or I never had an emotional traumatic event around my breathing. And that's okay as well. It's like, well, why are we engaging in this behavior of what we might call non-optimal breathing? And how is that then feeding into the system of your biomechanics, of your pressure management, of your tension and relaxation and our ability to actually be in charge of that and in control of that? Mm, I love that. It's like 
the anticipatory response just gets like hardwired. So it's yeah. like, even though there's nothing to be anticipating, it's just, that's our go-to. Um, and this is where I think breath is so much like how we choose our movement patterns. It's like what we do habitually and it might not bother us for a long time, but at some point it becomes, it could become inefficient. It can become injurious. And so we do have to examine like, it is something that is, been a path that's pretty darn uh, encoded, but we can we can reprogram. That's the beautiful thing about our computer of the brain. We can reprogram at any time. So how do you start um, this kind of reprogramming path with someone who, for breathing, like what are some things that you do? If you, if you have somebody that you can clearly see has a high stress existence and it's not appropriate for just, you know, talking to you or, or going about their day. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I always want people to understand is just the sheer volume, right? And scale of things. So most people are breathing, unfortunately, probably 25,000 times a day or up, right? And really, we maybe want people leaning more towards the kind of like 18 to 20,000 times a day. But just that number. So let's say someone comes in and they're like, all right, I've identified I maybe don't have great breathing patterns. Have I been doing that for a year, for a decade, for decades? We're probably talking millions of repetitions, right? So just letting them understand that this is not an overnight fix, right? It's not, oh, now I'm aware that I got to breathe better. I can change that. We have to unravel the association, that anticipatory response, right? Of millions of repetitions. But I also want people to understand like the grace of human biology. It's not like you now have to take a million good breaths to make it automatic, right? We have to give it intention and attention, but through what I love to term training the autopilot, right, is we have this conscious influence over this automatic system. And if I pay enough attention to that enough times, then my body starts to adapt, right? And that's where we can kind of like reprogram the system. I think the first thing that I probably teach everyone, and I think it's so often overlooked, is awareness. Are you aware of how you're breathing when you feel stressed versus relaxed, when you feel tense versus calm, when you feel overwhelmed and panicked versus calm and content, right? If you're not aware of the difference in your respiration between those two poles, those two states, then what good is giving you an exercise, right? I can be like, hey, here's a calming breathing pattern. But if you don't recognize when you are in a stressed state or that more sympathetic dominance, then what good is that exercise? So I really encourage people, and this is something that everyone can start with, of just building the muscle of attention, self-directed attention. How do I breathe when I feel X, Y, or Z? How do I breathe in these certain situations? Because, because breathing happens so often, right? Our brain is very good at automating. It does not want to notice 25,000 breaths every day. It's got way too many things to focus on. So it automates that on purpose. But you have to bring that autonomic process back up into conscious awareness so that you can start to address it. So having a one to two or three minute practice multiple times a day of just like, how am I breathing? Right? Is it fast or slow or shallow or deep or in my chest or in my belly? Like, don't judge it. Don't try and fix it from straight out of the gate. First, learn to listen to it and notice it and see how it changes based on how you're feeling. So building that kind of level of awareness, I think, is the first step that's most important. And then people can start to move towards like, well, now how do I control it? And then how do I optimize it? But without the awareness piece, I think everything else is for naught. Because I think, again, it comes back to what we typically see is like, I'm going to address my breathing with a 10-minute practice every day. 
Right? What about the other 23 hours and 50 minutes? <laughs> if that's dysfunctional or inappropriate, then that 10 minutes is a drop in the ocean and it's not going to do anything. Right? So it's really about learning your habitual patterns and addressing those and training the autopilot with conscious directed practices with the intention of I'm getting better at this autonomic function so that I don't have to be hyper aware of my breathing all the time. Right? My goal with people is not, I just want to make you obsessed with your breathing. It's like, let's fix your breathing in a way so that you don't have to pay it any attention anymore unless you want to use it as a tool to change how you feel. Mm. So can you talk about your own personal um, breathing practices that I'm sure that, yes, so much of it is now uh, you don't have to think about, but anything intentionally that you bring into your day? Yeah, definitely. So I probably categorize it in two parts. Like what am I doing for my nervous system and what am I doing for my physiology? And they might be opposing things, right? But again, understanding that my breath is going to interact with these systems. So I like to use something which we would call cyclical hyperventilation, which most people may have heard of the Wim Hof method or something called Tumo breathing, um, which is quite sympathetic in nature. When we think about that type of breath, right? It's this deep, full, fast, rhythmical breathing, which is kind of like putting the foot on the accelerator, right? It's ramping up the sympathetic nervous system. But then we also intersperse that with retentions or breath holding, right? So I'm kind of going from like, 60 miles an hour to zero. And that is kind of teaching my autonomic nervous system, how do I transition from fast to slow, from stress to relaxed, from on to off kind of thing. And that's what I think a lot of people lack because we live in a pretty hyper-stimulus world. Most of those things are pushing me towards the sympathetic state. And so my ability to learn to go from something stressful is happening and I can recover and de-escalate my nervous system in a short space of time, I think is critical for health. Because coming back to that idea of prioritization, now my body's prioritizing recovery and restoration and repair instead of deal with the threat. So I love to have a practice where I might take some deeper and faster and more rhythmical breaths for a period of time and then do some breath holding. And I love what I, I, my practice kind of is ever evolving, but right now I'm very fascinated just with this kind of state of opposition. What if I go from 100 breaths a minute to one breath a minute and I do a minute of each of those? What if I go from 100% capacity, my total volume, down to the tiniest breath that I can take and exploring those different states and how does that make me feel with the kind of overall intention of inducing a little bit of plasticity or flexibility within my nervous system? And then on the physiology side, I think a lot can be said from improving tolerance to carbon dioxide. And there's some beautiful research on the correlation between CO2 sensitivity and things like anxiety and panic and stress in a way. So letting myself get in touch with physiological stress, right? It is arguably the most primal response in our body is high CO2, right? Everyone hold their breath and tell me what it feels like when it feels like you need to breathe, right? It's undeniable. It's very, very primal. It's this innate like, oh, I need to do something panic, here, right? Yeah. It's panic. And it's called the false suffocation alarm, right? So my brain, we're triggering it to think like, oh God, so I'm about to run out of air. And that's a very strong stress response. So if I can practice kind of leaning into that, consciously doing it for a short period of time within my control and practicing calming down when my body wants to freak out, I think is an enormous tool because I always like to talk with my clients that it's not if 
something bad happens, it's when, right? It's not if shit hits the fan, it's when. And so instead of waiting for that curveball to come and how am I going to respond when the stressful thing happens? Like, let's practice that. Let's teach you a physiological tool that puts you into that state where it feels like, oh my God, everything is just like panic stations. Can I keep my wits about me? Can I not tense up and brace and want to run away so that when something perhaps is not related to my physiology occurs, I've taught myself a correct response or a more optimal response. Mm, I love that. You know, my um, both my kids learned how to free dive and my daughter's now in college and she some of those like pre-breathing exercises you do essentially to prepare for that state. Um, she still does like when she's feeling anxious. And so there's, there is so much to that, that, it, and it, and, and I think it's really important to notice like how it feels inside your head, like that, you know, not, not just when you get to a panic state, but afterwards, like that, yeah. whoa, that unbelievable, like, whoa, buzzy feeling. Like you can get this incredible natural buzz, which is when, when you have kicked into like, ah, okay, I'm good. Yeah, I didn't state. die. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> die. I feel amazing. <laughs> and I often make this joke with people when I'm teaching like kind of more physiological based exercise. It's like every time your brain has this, I didn't die realization, you become a little bit more equipped to deal with what Resilient. feels like stress, right? Yes. And freediving really transformed my breathwork practice because it, it put the theoretical tool of sitting there and holding your breath into a real world application. You're 20 feet underwater and your body wants to panic. You damn well better be able to stay calm <laughs> because it's a long way to the surface, right? Mm -hmm. And so that I was really like, oh, this is really how it works in the real world, right? And people don't have to go into a free diving course to understand the practicality of being able to calm your body down when it wants to freak out. Right? Whether that's for a panic attack, whether that's before going into a big job interview, whether that's an argument with your partner, right? we all have these feelings of like my nervous system fully engaged where it's like, I want to run away or I want to fight something. Like, Can I learn to keep my head and stay calm and be in control and not have the reactive response that wants to happen? And I think that's a valid tool for kind of almost any situation. It is. And I think everybody needs that in the world we live in. Now, I loved your terminology of breath retention. Um, it is essentially a hold, but I think when people hear hold, because I talk about retention because we, I practice, we practice it in some of the core work we do. And I, the retention is really for the transitions because that hold where you are kind of on empty is such a great way to move your body because you're you're kind of not getting in your own way and it's really it's helping to stabilize your center and then people are like oh you're holding your breath and I'm like think of it as retaining it is retention because when you think holding people yeah. do that you know <laughs> so um can you explain a little bit about the practice of that breath retention where how you know how you prepare just briefly um again He's just telling us this briefly. You don't have to practice this right away, but just getting an idea. Yeah, it's such an important point. And I wish that I kind of picked up on this earlier because when I first kind of dove into the world of breath work, right, breath holding was the language that I used. And you're so right. right? It's semantics. If I tell someone, it, yeah. hold your breath, I watch them go. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> and so what I'd say now is pause, right? We're going to pause. I want you to pause your breath rather than hold it because holding implies effort and force. And that's mm -hmm. literally the antithesis of what I want people to do when we're pausing the breath, right? It's really kind of like turning down the volume on all your effort. We don't want to be there bracing and holding and trying to prevent the air going in and out. 
And so what I think is really important for people to understand, and maybe we can kind of, people can take this and come back and listen to it and practice, but it's really about pressure, right? So the way in which we breathe, my diaphragm goes down, my rib cage expands, which means there's more space in my lungs. The pressure drops, right? And so the air moves from outside to inside. It goes from high pressure to low pressure, right? And that's just my inhale. My diaphragm relaxes, it rises, my rib cage compresses, which means the pressure rises in my lungs and the air flows out. If I can match the internal pressure to the external pressure, there is no effort required from my body to prevent the movement of air, right? So if anyone's not driving and not walking and is just sitting, if we just breathe out the air from our lungs and we try to pause, you'll notice there's a lot of effort, right? The air wants to come into your lungs and you're preventing it, right? Now let's take a big breath in and also hold the breath at the top. The air wants to go out, right? So let's just now let the breath go and let it stop where it wants. So this is the point where the internal pressure is matching the external pressure. I'm not trying to prevent the air coming in, neither am I trying to retain it from going out. And so that's where we want to practice retentions or pauses. And it's a lovely little practice for people to find their center. I love that you use that language because it is the center of your breath. It's the center of your body. It's the center of your presence. And if we can actually learn, it's a, it's a lovely little space to get in touch with. Um, and I love, again, kind of like, how does this play out in real world situations? Well, we already touched on when we hold our breath, right? <gasps> something scary, something frightening, something surprising, something painful. Think about when we have these pauses, right? Think of the language of something took my breath away, right? Mm. Watching a beautiful sunset, listening to beautiful music, and all of a sudden we stop. <laughs> and where we're stopping is in between my exhale and my inhale. This space kind of appears, which is very parasympathetic in nature. There's no effort. And there's a natural kind of retention. There's this natural stopping of my breath. And that we all associate with like, whoa, I'm observing something beautiful or I'm in awe or I'm in wonder and my breathing just stops. And so if we can cultivate that and use it as a short little practice, then I can induce that same feeling in my body of I'm observing something wonderful, right? I'm pausing my breath at the bottom. It means I'm safe, right? There's nothing dangerous. There's no threats. And so that's a lovely little trigger to the nervous system to just, ah, oh, right? Let's just take a moment to pause before I'm back into engage, doing, doing, doing. I love that. So um, when people get to that pause so that, uh, and they start to feel the wanting, like, so the recoil of the diaphragm or the pressure changes, uh, do you start with just like, okay, stay there for an extra five or 10 seconds and then stay there for 30 seconds? And, and does that sensation is it that you become accustomed to it? Does it subside? Do you just kind of hang with it as long as you can? What are the next steps? Yeah. So I think a little bit of all of the above, right? So physiologically over time, we become a little bit less sensitive to carbon dioxide, right? So it takes a little bit longer before I feel that urgency to breathe, which is helping us to kind of build that sense of resilience and capacity. What I love people to do is what we're trying to induce is an adaptation, right? And we really want to ensure that we're kind of separating the physiology from the emotional response to the physiology. So a lot of people, particularly those that experience anxiety and have panic attacks, right? 
holding the breath and feeling the carbon dioxide rise can be very inducing of anxiety and panic. So we don't want to sit there and grit our teeth and lock down our jaw and say, I'm going to fight this, right? Because my brain is perceiving, oh, this thing's scary and stressful and I don't like it. So I'm actually going to get more sensitive, right? I'm going to ring the alarm bell even sooner next time. What we're really trying to do is dissociate. So when the CO2 level rises in my blood and my brain goes, what's going on? I'm sitting on a chair meditating, right? I'm relaxed. There's nothing environmentally that my brain says this is scary or stressful. And so what it then does is says, all right, I'm going to lift the ceiling, right? I'm going to reduce the sensor. I won't ring the alarm until there's more carbon dioxide because repeatedly we're having high CO2, but nothing stressful is happening. So what I love people to do in the initial stages is just hold or pause the breath until we feel, I like to call it the knock at the door, right? Your breath wants to come back in now. Okay. And do three things. Relax the forehead, unlock the jaw and drop the shoulders. Partly what we're doing is self-distraction. I'm not focusing on, I need to breathe, I need to breathe, I need to breathe, right? I'm going through a little checklist, which is pushing back on my automatic response. What most people do when the CO2 builds up is we want to lock up the shoulders, clench the jaw, and uh, fire the eyebrows. So we're just making sure that I'm not letting my reactive body react to the chemistry that's changing. So I have a little bit of this top-down control of relax my forehead, soften my jaw, relax my shoulders, and then I want to take a controlled breath in. So I never want to push to the point where I have to gasp or (gasps) because that's a very stressful breath. And my brain went, that was stressful, right? I'm going to catch that next time. So we just want to push to the point where, yes, it will be a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit challenging but not so far that my body pulls the plug and it has a reactive response. So we want to be able to kind of finish that breath retention with a controlled inhale through the nose and, right? We don't want to, oh, that was really, you know, that's inducing this, that was a bit scary. Mm -hmm. So we just want to kind of ride that little happy medium between, I want to breathe, right? And my body's telling me it's time to breathe. But perhaps I can hang out there and get used to this sensation and get comfortable with the discomfort for five to seven, maybe 10 seconds for some people. What are your thoughts on, uh, I'm sure you've read um, James Nestor's book, but on taping the mouth during vigorous exercise. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't read his book, you have to read it. It's it's fascinating and um, it really plays into all of this. But I'm curious if you practice any of that. Yeah, it's a phenomenal book. And and so I use mouth taping when I go to sleep at night. I was always, until I kind of dove into this world of breathwork, an unbeknownst mouth breather. And I would wake up in the morning and I would have cracked lips and a dry mouth. And I always considered myself a slow riser. <laughs> it took me a while to get going. And that was because I just wasn't having restorative sleep. And so I started putting this little bit of vertical tape. It's important for people to know we're not kind of taping the mouth closed, right? It's just a little seatbelt to stop your jaw opening when you relax and you're full asleep. But my sleep completely transformed. I started waking up feeling rested. I felt just ready to go. And I felt like I'd been in bed for eight hours, which is how you should feel when you've been in bed for eight hours. Not like I wish I could go back to sleep and sleep for another eight hours. And then I started to explore and, and be curious with with exercising. Um, And so when I'm in Australia, I live about a 25 minute ride from my house to the clinic that I work at. And I would ride in and I started just experimenting with, 
I would ride and just let myself breathe through my mouth, right? Which is how most people will reflexively breathe under high intensity, right? The CO2 levels up and I'm right. I'm breathing to match the demands. And I would get to work and I would be, I live in the tropics and I would be hot and sweating and red and huffing and puffing. And my heart rate would be up. And it would take me about 15 minutes before I was ready to see a patient, right? That's just how long it took me to kind of recover. And then I started taping my mouth closed and riding the same route to work. Um, it took me about three minutes longer, right? So I wasn't quite as fast. But 90 seconds after I arrived, body temperature was normal, heart rate was normal, breathing was normal, wasn't sweating, right? I was back to my baseline almost instantly. And that to me was like, whoa. And when you kind of understand aerobic and anaerobic kind of thresholds and capacity, riding or exercising mouth open, we're just pushing ourselves into this emergency state, right? It's like, just create energy however you can. And we go to an anaerobic process, which means now I'm producing lactic acid and this metabolic waste, which my body has to work to clear out, right? And so as soon as I started riding with my mouth closed, only breathing through my nose retains a lot more carbon dioxide, which means I'm creating energy in an aerobic capacity which means I don't have all of that metabolic waste product. My heart rate doesn't go as high. My body temperature doesn't skyrocket. And my time back to recovery was just a fraction of what it was. So that to me, I was like, oh, this is something. So I, it's not to say that, again, appropriate and inappropriate. I'm not saying never exercise with your mouth open. But if you go from your stretching warm-up and 10 seconds into your jog, you're... <laughs> Right, We're missing a big window of exploring our metabolic machinery of how do I produce energy under load? I'm going from zero to 10 really quickly and I'm not exploring that. So I'd encourage people to just have a play with, where's the point where I feel like I have to open my mouth? All right, maybe I can modulate my intensity rather than modulate my breathing. And that's the game I get people to play, right? Instead of, and this is where the human ego gets in the way, right? I want to run fast. I want to run far. I want to lift heavy. I want to do the thing. And I let my breathing catch up to the intensity that I choose. What if we chose our breathing and we modulated the intensity to, I'm only going to run as fast or as far or lift as heavy as I can maintain nasal breathing, for example, or nasal inhales, mouth exhales. It just gives us a little bit more ability to, just be in communication with the body and how well it's functioning and what it's doing. And I think that's, again, a, a lovely place for people to explore. Oh, I love that. All right, I'm, I'm going to try. I've I do it at night, but I, man, I'm going to try it in some form of exercise. <laughs> so much of my exercise, I'm talking to people as I'm doing, you know, so, uh, but on my yeah, own, in my own <laughs> practice, oh, yeah, they're like, my husband's always like, what? You don't want to talk to me. <laughs> Oh, well, we could talk forever. This has been so joyful. I love uh, just connecting with like-minded people. And I, I just love this idea. And again, what I try and convey is that our we are a laboratory and isn't it wonderful that we can experiment and see what is going to make us feel better, uh, move better, and and just behave better in life. And so thank you for sharing your story. Uh, where can people find out more information about you and contact you? Yeah. And I, I just want to second that. And I love the kind of analogy of like the N equals one. When we look at kind of scientific research papers, oh, there was one, you're the one participant, right? Experiment and see what works and what doesn't, right? Everyone's a little bit different. So take the onus on yourself and be your own lab, right? It's really cool. Exactly. I love it. 
Um, if people want to learn more, I'm on social media as Breath Body Therapy. Um, my website's the same. I'm most active on Instagram and, and a little bit on Facebook. But I really encourage people to to reach out if they have questions. It's it's something that I think too many people just think oh, I'm breathing all the time, right? What could I need to right? But I, I often use the kind of example that well, someone taught you how to drive and how to use a computer and how to communicate, but who taught you how to breathe? And for most people, it's no one, right? We learned by mimicry and just kind of this autonomic, autonomic function. But we can pick up bad habits, just like we can pick up bad movement habits and bad behavioral patterns, right? We can pick up bad breathing habits. And the tricky thing with breathing that I'd love everyone to kind of understand is bad breathing doesn't always show up as breathing, right? Maybe it shows up as my inability to tolerate stress or my inability to fall asleep or my inability to digest food in a constructive way. Like, just because I'm not having breathing symptoms does not mean I shouldn't have a look at whether I'm breathing optimally or like it's serving its function. Exactly. I love that. I think it's so important, especially if you're someone who is not feeling energized or feeling sluggish or feeling stressed. There are many things that contribute to that. And the beautiful thing is whether or not it's about your breath, your breath can help all the other potential factors that do contribute to those feelings and and perhaps really make you feel like a brand new person. So give it a go. It takes no effort. You don't have to you don't have to purchase anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you're just breathing all the time, but you can actually um, really be a, a, a fuller participant in how you breathe and yeah, how you live. It, it kind of just puts us back in the driver's seat, right? Of like when we come back to the idea of the nervous system or physiology or my emotional state, right? Are we the on the receiving end and am I kind of bouncing around and reacting? Or can I be the one in the driver's seat as this is how I want to feel? So this is how I'm going to get there. And this is how I want to move. And this is going to help me get there. And I love what you said. It kind of like doesn't really matter what the necessarily the problem is. Breathing can be this thing that kind of enhances or optimizes. So whether it is emotional or movement-based or psychological based, right? Breathing can be a really nice tool. Really nice. Well, thank you so much for your time and your energy and your passion for this. Um, It's really contagious. So thank you, Campbell. Thank you so much for having me on. And for everyone listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.